Um, I don't know why I was looking away, but uh, hello. <laughs> hello and uh, welcome to a new episode of Africa as a Country Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm joined as always by my co-presenter, uh, Will Shoki, who is in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, Africa as a Country Talk, AIC Talk, is a weekly talk and interview show every Tuesday at 8 p.m. East African time or 5 p.m. in Dakar, as you can see there. But decolonizing time now. Our show is produced as always by Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. And we're happy to tell you this is episode 30. Episode 30, it's a big one. And we've been doing this for a minute now. And if you're tuning in this early in the show, thank you for being with us this long. It means you must be one of our longtime guests. And we don't need to tell you if you missed the show last week because you probably didn't. Uh, but in case you're a first-time watcher, <laughs> first watcher, though, if you missed the show last week, uh, we explored African film and TV in the age of streaming. And for that one, it was great. We had Dylan Valley, Sarah, Hannah Berg, and Soho Cooper to talk about how big streaming platforms like Netflix are trying to gain a foothold on the continent. And we were also joined by the legend herself, Mahen Bonetti, who is the founder of the New York's legendary African Film Festival, and she spoke to us about African film festivals in the age of digital streaming, and clips from that episode are available on our YouTube channel, but as usual, best check out the whole thing on our Patreon, as well as all of the episodes from our archive, which is 30 episodes strong at this point, so be sure to do that. So yesterday was International Women's Day, and on today's show, it is fitting to take stock of the struggle for women's liberation on the continent. And we have three guests joining us, Serene Hassim, Rosbel Kagumire, and Rama Saladieng. In a moment, we'll fully introduce our guests. But first, I wanted to pay homage to a friend and colleague, Karima Brown, who died on March 4th of COVID-19 uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Karima was one of South Africa's most senior journalists. She was also an editor and broadcaster. During her journalistic career, she had been a political editor at Business Day and group political editor for independent newspapers. She had also served in senior positions and as a news producer for the country's public broadcaster, the SABC, as well as the private ENCA channel, and as well as presented talk shows on radio. South Africa is experiencing a virulent strain of COVID-19 and Karina, Karima fell ill in early February. She spends weeks, spent weeks in intensive care in a Johannesburg hospital. To date, 50,803 people have died of COVID-19 and more than 1.5 million people have been infected in the country. Karima's death, however, came as a shock to journalists and the political class. She had a robust presence in South African politics, a product of the radical left politics of Cape Town's colored working class townships in the 1980s she carried that politics into journalism. Her father had been a local activist with the United Democratic Front, the mass movement that in the 1980s revived resistance inside the country against the apartheid regime. After the end of apartheid, Karima remained close to the ANC, but at times she clashed with the party, so much so that at one point she was blacklisted from appearing as a political commentator on the country's public broadcaster. In 2019, she won a court case against the Economic Freedom Fighters, that's the party of Julius Malema, after he published her cell phone number on social media, 
<clears throat> sorry, and party members send her threatening messages. On the same day she passed away, she was buried in a simple Islamic ceremony. At a graveside, Ronnie Casrols, a Jewish South African and a freedom fighter in the struggle against apartheid, eulogized her. Casrols also served in the first post-apartheid cabinet as a government minister and is an outspoken opponent, of, a critic of the Israeli occupation. Casrols told Karima's family that they should be proud of who she had become. Casrols himself is 82 years old and his doctor had recommended that he not attend public gatherings. But Kazrul said he had to turn up for Karima's burial service. How could one stay away from someone who I knew, not as much as many of you, but who I came to admire, respect, love, and who stood for justice for all the people of our country, said Kazrul. And if I use the word revolutionary, I'm not attaching that to any particular institution. Karima Brown was 53 years old. Ah, rest, rest in peace, Karima Brown. Um, I think myself and, and many others in, in South Africa and around the world were shocked to hear of her death and our deepest thoughts and condolences are with her family and those who knew her. And she was a remarkable woman whom we're all going to miss and, and thank you, Sean, for that the truly wonderful and, and chilling tribute. Um, so a reminder to everyone to please hit the like button below and to subscribe to our YouTube channel, as well as to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, please subscribe to our Patreon where you can access all of the show's episodes and help us fund Africa as a country in general. So to discuss today's program, which I think is going to be an awesome one, we are commemorating International Women's Day, which happened yesterday on Monday, the 8th of March, and it was celebrated across the globe. But as Rama Saladieng, who you're all going to see in a moment, emphasizes for Africa as a Country series, talking back African feminisms in dialogue, there has been a deliberate erasure of generations of women from Africa, the Caribbean, India, and Latin America because they contest mainstream feminism, so their voices should also be heard. The specificities and nuances of their diverse struggles acknowledged. So on today's program, we actively want to fight that omission. So to bring on our first guest, who is Shireen Hasim. Uh, Shireen, is an internationally renowned expert in feminist theory, politics, social movements, and collective action. She is the research chair in gender and African politics at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. But we've been informed just before this call that she is in Toronto, the six, as the youngsters call it. World is giving away people's business, but it's okay. I mean, I'm not trying to expose, but you know, we want to we want to be reliable and accurate all the time. Uh, and previously, she was the professor of politics at the University of the Witwatersrand in her native South Africa, where we all miss her. And before that, uh, before she joined Carlton, she spent the 2017-18 academic year as a distinguished visiting professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard. Shireen, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you here and. So maybe start with a, a very personal question, I suppose. What does International Women's Day mean to you? 
Thanks very much, Will, and thanks, Sean, as well. And, and before I answer your question, I want to just um, underscore your lovely tribute to Karima with my own uh, sadness at the loss of such a, such a powerful woman's voice in the public sphere. And to add to what you were saying, Sean, to point out that even her funeral was political uh, in, a, in a feminist sense that, you know, at Muslim funerals, women traditionally do not uh, go to the actual gravesite. And a group of feminist friends of hers in uh, Johannesburg went on behalf of all of us. Uh, so I think that's a, that's really was a, a moving uh, gesture on their part because we do have to change those spaces and those practices as part of what we do uh, in changing society. So what does Women's Day, International Women's Day mean to me? Um, in fact, I have a much longer association with International Women's Day than with National Women's Day. And I, you know, it's worth pointing out to people outside of South Africa that in South Africa, International Women's Day hasn't been uh, as widely uh, commemorated uh, because we had our own day, August 9th, uh, around which most of uh, the activism uh, uh, of women since the uh, 1985, that, that's really the day that's been uh, specifically the day around which South African uh, gender activists have uh, mobilized. But International Women's Day is really important because of its rootings in the socialist tradition, um, because it forces us to consider, I think, three uh, parts of the project of uh, liberation for uh, for women. One is um, the it draws attention to questions of labor, draws attention to the ways in which women's labor is exploited, the conditions under which women have had to work, and the devaluing uh, of their labor. Um, and the, the second uh, important area that it uh, commemorates is uh, the, the ways in which capitalism has enmeshed us in a single system around the world, right? So even though we may be experiencing the particular forms in different African countries, that it unites us across uh, the globe in uh, trying to share and understand and explain the workings of capitalism from a gender point of view. And then the third is that it helps us to build transnational solidarity. And for those of us in South Africa in particular, that transnational solidarity was really so important uh, in the 70s and the 80s because we were able to draw on the experiences of feminists in places as diverse as Cuba, Vietnam, uh, Uganda, um, you know, countries where they had perhaps uh, you know, to some other extent decolonized before South Africa was decolonized. And so they had a head start uh, on thinking about what that would look like. So in South Africa, that transnational solidarity was a real uh, process of learning for us. And I well remember in the early 1980s, uh, underground copies uh, circulating of Cuba's family code because there the feminists were trying to think about what it would mean to give effect to the idea of equality 
Um, and, and so their struggles, their successes and failures really were quite important for thinking about uh, South Africa. And remember that that was in a time when information was not as widely available. You didn't have uh, the World Wide Web and free and easy access uh, in the way we have it today. So those cyclo-styled pamphlets and so on really were important um, intellectual and political resources. So we, we want to ask you specifically about South Africa, but before we do that, um, you sort of said that there are these like general conditions um, that people live under, that women have to live under. Can you just kind of specifically, can you generalize maybe to Africa, like what, we, what would you think are the main obstacles that women face up at this point on the continent? What are the common features when it comes to uh, the obstacles to women's liberation? Well, you know, I think political exclusion has been an, a big obstacle. The fact that women are not considered to be part of the public sphere of decision-making. So their exclusion from, uh, from governing structures, their exclusion from all the decision-making spaces. And so, you know, we've seen quite a large fight against uh, that exclusion. But the thing we really come to understand as we gained political inclusion, sometimes through things like quotas, you know, I think Rosa Luxemburg was absolutely correct that political representation matters. It's not just a bourgeois phenomenon, but it's not enough, right? So the big issues are the ways in which women's labor continues to be exploited and under-recognized. Um, the, the ways in which women's care work uh, is the shock absorber for, a, for failed states all across uh, the continent, um, particularly after the structural adjustment programs, right, where, you know, the, the lots of post-colonial governments started to um, reduce the amount of spending uh, on the public sector. And it was women who picked up the slack. So when you, when you, and it, and it got valorized in terms of the importance of community uh, but always these discourses of passing things onto the community or kind of all that ideology of, um, you know, we don't need the state, really what it does is further exploit women's unpaid labor. Uh, and so, so that remains a huge obstacle, this, um, the relationship between productive and reproductive labor, I think is, a sen is central across the continent, even though Yes, differently manifested. Um, so, and you know, parts uh, women still are a small part of the formal labor force, um, but that's a particularly African issue as well. And that much of the labor force is in the informal uh, sector uh, of the labor force. So we have to develop different kinds of tools for understanding how to engage the economic questions because, you know, whereas uh, and the, the rooting of International Women's Day is in women factory workers organizing, uh, for example, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, in the Bread and Roses strike in New York City around the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. That's what that rooting uh, for International Women's Day is. We don't, you know, we're not participating uh, uh, to that uh, in that way in the economy uh, across Africa. So unions are not 
perhaps the most important, although they've been important in South Africa, but they're not across the continent. So how do we mobilize around economic questions, I would say, is actually in the end, uh, the real challenge facing us in Africa. So related to that question, to touch on some of the research that you do, you mentioned earlier that political exclusion remains a big obstacle to mobilizing around economic questions. But I'm interested to hear about how in places like South Africa, for example, where there has been some degree of political inclusion that can end up incorporating women's organizations into the ruling power structure and their co-option into that power structure can end up being an obstacle as well. So I'm thinking here, for example, about the ANC Women's League. And it's interesting that we began by talking about National Women's Day in South Africa and mm -hmm. the ANC Women's League played a significant role in the anti-apartheid liberation struggle. But today in South African politics, it's sort of become something of a non-entity when it comes to all of the key questions surrounding how women are oppressed today. So how do we how do we become alert to the dangers of of co-option of women's organizations? And how do you usually see that happening, especially in a in a post-colonial context, uh, as is uh, South Africa's contemporary situation today? I think of inclusion, political inclusion, as the minimum condition. We should all have the right to participate and to speak. I mean, I think about Karima that's really so interesting is that when women get into the public sphere and they say things men don't like, you know, you see what they what happened to her mm. was death threats, right? So, so I don't take for granted the power of voice in the public sphere, uh, and I don't think that we should, you know, I frequently quote Rosa Luxemburg, we can't dismiss the importance of representation, but it's only a minimum condition. We need something else. You need a bottom line. You need an agenda. You need, you need to have an agenda that you are taking into that public sphere. What, what we've seen, not just in South Africa, but even countries like Rwanda and Uganda, and Kenya, where women have made inroads into the formal political sort of arena and have had, I mean, Rwanda has a majority, I think, of women in government, more women than men, is that if you don't have a strong agenda for substantive change, if you don't have a set of ideas and policies uh, that you are going to take into that space, then you just become another tool for the ruling class, right? You, you know, it's, it's, it, you're easily sidelined, um, or as in the case of South Africa. I mean, I don't, I don't think that the ANC Women's League is irrelevant. Unfortunately, I think it's become too relevant as an obstacle um, to feminist uh, agendas. It's become a kind of representative of all the narratives. Um, that keep women down, right? So uh, NC Women's League supported patriarchs. It supported um, a kind of agenda uh, of, uh, I would think, of a, quite a conservative kind of women's agenda. 
so it is mobilizing women, but around the wrong kinds of things. Um, you know, and if we want to say, well, it has to organize around a different set of issues, where are those going to come from? So to me, the real issue is how do those representatives link up to organized and mobilized groups of people on the ground? Who are they representing when they are in those positions of power? Is there some kind of organic relationship? Can't be a relationship just to the party bosses which is what it has become, right? If you want to progress in South African politics, you have to represent a political party. That's what the system has set up. Um, but are they really uh, representing constituencies of uh, not even just the poorest and most marginalized, I would say feminists in the country. And, and so we have to develop that agenda. I sometimes think that when we when we focus also only on issues of identity, uh, we forget those issues. And it's not though they should never be counterposed. Both are important, um, but it's part of the co-option is to make us only talk about injured identities, right? Uh, whereas out there in the world, for the majority of people, not just women, but the majority of people there are a range of economic exclusions that are really powerful material and being felt. Um, and, and how do you build that agenda? So one of, the, one of the interesting things politically in South Africa, right, has been that in a way, 20 odd years after the end of apartheid, you saw young people on South African campuses challenging kind of the but in their in their terms, like the political deal of '94, and saying that it was insufficient, that there were too many compromises, that South Africa had not reckoned with white supremacy, and so they, you know, I don't have to rehash this. Fees must fall, uh, roads must fall. But one important component of that movement was also that that movement attacked patriarchy in South Africa very explicitly. It attacked, you know, the patriarchy that they saw uh, being projected by the ANC. Um, and they kind of, it looked like they were wanting to introduce into discourse, into political organizations, uh, to challenge to challenge patriarchy, and I suppose bring up about another politics. Can in, from your assessment, like sort of watching them, they were very critical, I would say, of their mothers, of their aunts, of their older sisters or older cousins. Um, and it lasted, you know, it was two years. It was everywhere you look, they were there. How do you assess like that moment? And do you think that that was good, that that pointed to like a good future for feminists? Were they, were they putting something on the agenda that could get us out of that sort of, and I know you were kind of pointing to the nuance of the, of the ANC Women's League and so on, but they get, got us out of that, out of that sort of inherited politics. I thought that was a really significant moment, but you know, I think it was something was building in the years before. Um, mm -hmm. I would place the break, there's a generational break, and I would place that break earlier. I would say, you know, around from around 2004, from around the moment when we were celebrating 10 years of democracy, um, you know, uh, well, I, you know, some of us were pointing to the problems earlier, but like and around 2000, I think you see a significant break with the narrative of um, a kind of triumphant democracy from feminists in particular. And the break was marked by the Jacob Zuma rape trial, actually, uh, and by 
the you know the rise of movements like one in nine um, and the renewed attention to gender-based violence um, so when fees must fall when that moment comes uh, those young women are it's the high point of that generational break for me uh, and they're putting on the table um, violence and patriarchy in very direct ways. Thank you very much for putting that picture up because one of the things they they did, I think we have to bear in mind, it wasn't the whole of the Fees Must Fall movement, it was the feminists and trans queer activists really who made that break as you see in the picture. And to do that, they had to tackle the power of men within the Fees Must Fall movement. And I would say the men did not respond very well to that challenge. Um, that moment that you have, that photograph, that, that's a big crucial moment of that break. But, um, you know, the imbocordo moment, that moment of saying, you know, you're challenging the big issues, but you're not questioning the terms of power inside, on the left itself. And so that, that's generational break had to happen. Uh, for me as an older feminist, I was delighted because I think, you know, things we've been saying before and being pushed back against, uh, they, they just like stepped into that space. That was a really important moment, the moment of the four uh, young feminists who stood up at the announcement of the results at the IEC center, you know, that the, the, those, are, those are powerful moments of rapture. Uh, so I celebrate that, but I think, well, what next? I'm, it's the same problem as we have with the Wimsley. What is our agenda? What are the things we are concretely now going to fight for, not only what we are speaking against? Uh, and, and I, you know, I want to talk about that agenda now. What, what do we do with it? So, Sean, you're you're on mute, Sean. I seem I seem to mute myself endlessly. Oh yeah, there we go. Ugh, production, it's my fault. Um, we want you to stick around and not leave, but we wanted to. Um, at the end, we'll bring you back. We, right now, we just wanted to introduce um, our next guest, uh, who is uh, Rama uh, Saladieng, a Senegalese researcher and writer. Um, she's on the faculty of the University of Edinburgh. Edinburgh, sorry, I always say Edinburgh. That tells you something about where I'm from. Yes, I'm decolonizing pronunciation. And she guest edited for us the series Talking Back African Feminisms in Dialogue uh, on Africa as a Country. And her research focus is on feminist political economy, agrarian studies, gender development in Africa, and African feminisms. Um, we wanted to ask Rama specifically about West Africa, particularly about Senegal, because I don't know if you've been noticing there's a lot happening there. But first, we wanted to ask Rama, just, just to start us off, what, what does International Women's Day mean to you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, there with you today. I listened with great pleasure uh, Shirin's uh, response. And I also wanted to uh, pay tribute to Karima Brown, uh, may her soul rest in peace or may her soul rise in power so i i what does international women day mean to me i think many things because first of all i think it's an opportunity for us to remember 
on whose shoulders we stand. Because we did not, um, you know, all the things we were fighting for, we did not just imagine them out of the blue. We inherited some of those struggles from other giant feminist trailblazers, and we need to recognize that. And in doing that, we also need to recognize that some of the issues that we are facing are also daughters of our time. So while reconnecting the dots or paying uh, tri tribute to those past struggles, also defining, as Shireen has said, defining what our own agenda is, defining our own mission and fulfilling it. I think that's very important. So to me, being based in the diaspora, what does International Women's Day mean to me? I think it's also an opportunity to uh, celebrate all those women who inspired us, but also reconnect. Uh, because most of the time when we talk about African feminisms, I think Sometimes we tend to forget the diaspora and how African diaspora are building transnational solidarities, organizing and moving beyond borders. And thanks to the new um, geographies of um, the digital, you know, we, we are able to organize uh, further. So for me, it's, um, it's really reviving the spirit of what initially inspired International Women's Day. Not just an opportunity to to have those festive moments, as we often have that in Senegal, because I think most of the time we forget that it's International uh, Women's Rights Day. In Senegal, it's just a celebration. I wake up and I receive all those WhatsApp messages. Oh, happy International Women's Day. Uh, you are our mother. You are our sister. I don't know what. But I'm like, okay, that's great. But I think we need to revive also the spirit of what's behind uh, International Women's Day. So gather around issues of oppression, issues of capital, capitalist exploitation, issues of um, patriarchies, etc. Um, and coming from West Africa, what does it mean in particular? I think at this specific time, at uh, this critical juncture, we cannot omit, or uh, we need to pay a, specific, a special tribute to what's going on in Ghana, queer uh, Ghanaian life matter. I think that's really important that all citizens are recognized fully and um, pay tribute to what is happening in Senegal, free Senegal. And we have seen what is uh, going on in Equatorial Guinea. So I think um, yesterday was a very painful day because um, not only because of the protest going on in Senegal, for instance, but because that day, which was really symbolic, symbolic was also uh, tainted with uh, very painful events. And we will come back to that later. But we, we, we can, yes. Sorry, sorry, Rama. I mean, I, I, I don't want to interrupt you. I'll let you continue, sorry. Okay. So I think it's also an, an opportunity to to just, um, okay, I'm thinking in French now. End of the day, I speak French. It's <laughs> 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 an opportunity to just um, uh, remind ourselves to take care of ourselves. I always insist on that. And I think it was an important point in the uh, African feminisms in dialogue, the centrality of self-care. Uh, in the past, Days we've been gathering around free Senegal, etc., etc. But we need to remind ourselves of the centrality 
of also taking care of ourselves, not in a sense, not as a privilege, but as a way of sustaining the momentum, sustaining the efforts, sustaining what's important and central, central to us. So basically, those are some of the ideas that 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 um, come to me. But I think, um, yeah, some of the other issues we can uh, discuss further. Mm. I, I wanted to say, in, in the spirit of taking self-care seriously, if you feel like speaking Franklish, please go ahead. We'll do our best. I might lose you. I might lose you. I might even lose you. Je ne, um, je ne parlais, je ne parlais pas. Uh, <laughs> I can speak a little bit. No, it's not I'm not really, uh, I'm kidding. Um, so let's talk about what has been happening recently. I mean, you mentioned that typically in Senegal, it's a day of festivity and joy, but Women's Day this year is marked on a more somber note in the sense of what's happening. And you've just recently published an article on Africa is a country that I highly encourage everyone to check out, which breaks down precisely what's happening. It's called Take the Soul from Everyone and the Liberty of All. And you write that the Usman Sonko Ajisar rape case is allegoric of the treatment of victims of rape and sexual violence in Senegal, a country in which the bodies of women have always been an arena for political battles. Could you unpack that and, and maybe for our audiences just explain what is happening because I actually think a lot of people don't appreciate the nuance. I think a lot of people are on social media, they see the free Senegal hashtag and they think that this is uh, another protest for democratic change and Usman Sonko is the savior which is rising to that task but they don't appreciate that the story has a, a, a much darker under, understory to it and, and one in which women are once again the ones who are receiving a lot of the um, receiving a lot of flack and a lot of heat. Um, so could you could you unpack this for us? Thank you so much, William. So uh, first of all, I think we need to just contextualize what had happened and what has led to those events we have that are unfolding currently in Senegal. So the free Senegal hashtag had been launched on social media following. Um, some of the decisions taken by Macky Sall <laughs> to uh, put to jail Usman Sonko while he was trying to respond to a convocation um, uh, to go to the police because he was involved in a case of rape. So Usman Sonko is a member of parliament. He's young. He was the main opponent of, um, of uh Macky Sall in the last uh, presidential elections. He has a lot of supporters. Uh, people are very passionate about him. Unfortunately, he had been accused of rape and by a young woman uh, because he used to go to a parlor, beauty parlor, massage parlor, and um, um, he was he had allegedly raped a young woman named Adisar uh, several times and uh, constraining her with a gun. That's what uh, had been, uh, what has sparked everything that has happened. But that's not the only thing. I think we need to also analyze the political economic context. So that specific event also sedimented with other things that were happening, which are the, the increased um, uh, lack of respect of the law in Senegal, uh, the politicization of the very rape 
case because we have seen the the the, the ministry of justice treating this rape case with a let's say with an enthusiasm we didn't know <laughs> uh we didn't uh, know um we hadn't seen before but even before that we have also seen an increased lack of you know the, the separation of the powers have not been respected with covid-19 the president had increased his powers uh taken more and more powers from the parliament and all of that the curfew measures that had been taken for uh, in march last year and then again at the end of last year from uh, december i believe so all of these for a country whose economy is mainly based on urban econo urban economies are mainly based on on you know informal activities street activities uh, the youth are just um trying to connect the dots so all of these together led to a series of contest contestation protest and up to today i believe 12 people young people have lost their lives mm -hmm. the majority of their of these people are under 18 the majority of these people are under 18 so for me it's an opportunity when i see all the people struggling wanting uh, makisal to address their concerns which is le legitimate I also believe, and also being very enthusiastic and defending Usman Sonko, I also believe we need to also defend Adisar. We don't know, unless proven innocent, I believe that both the both parties need to be listened to. So what I'm seeing is that people are just um, drawing a picture of, uh, of uh, conspiration, that Usman Sonko is innocent, but all this had been... Uh, is a plot from the government so that so so that Usman Sonko will not be a, a candidate for the next election so i think it's a it's a shortcut it's too easy the case is uh, uh needs to be judged in a transparent manner but yesterday morning for instance when Usman Sonko had to be um to go and see the judges his advocates his lawyers uh, put to, put forward a, a, a request for all the charges to be dropped. I'm like, okay, you had been imprisoned fairly, uh, unfairly maybe, because you've been accused of um, uh, of uh, mobilizing uh, or, or um, creating civil unrest. Maybe that's not the case, but it's not a reason for this case to be dismissed. It's a, I think it's a private matter, but which had become so politicized that no matter what the outcome people will judge that uh, the outcome is political it's no longer a legal affair so for me as a feminist i believe we need to recognize how women's bodies have been um, used have been a battlefield for political motives so and 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 this victim is not maybe uh maybe not victim but um Adisar deserves to be listened to the same way Usman Sonko is being celebrated. And other things I wanted to mention, all the people who lost their lives, those young people, I totally understand the frustrations that have led to people taking to the street. But the same way as those fights are fought on women's bodies, they are also fought on young, most of the time vulnerable, poor people's bodies. Those are the people who took to the streets, I don't think we will see victims from 
the leaders, the, the family members of the leaders of the opposition or family members of the actual regime. Those are poor people from the suburbs or from you know rural areas. And I believe it's about time that we stop using those bodies as a, a stepping stone or either as a battlefield for political uh, uh, motivation. And that's my, that's my really two cents, because I do believe all those deaths could have been avoided had Usman Sonko presented himself to, um, to his convocation without creating all this politicization and had Makisal not played with mm. you know, our, our constitution. So to me, to yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And and to ask as as a follow-up uh, to both of you and and Shireen, you were talking about this earlier. We'd mentioned Jacob Zuma and his own rise to power and what's happening with Usman Sonko in many ways mirrors what happened with former president Jacob Zuma here in South Africa when in the middle of his rape trial, a lot of people embraced him as a replacement for former president Thabo Mbeki because it meant a break with neoliberal orthodoxy in South Africa, at least that's what people thought back then. And in this case, people support Sonko till the end of the earth because they think it means uh, a break with, with dictatorial uh, rule, um, as, as Ramo was explaining now. So I'm wondering, is this a, a chronic pattern of African politics that demands for, for gender justice are always puts it against something else or always recede in the background in favor of something else. They, they have to wait until a certain thing happens. They have to wait until we can overcome neoliberalism or they have to wait until we can install democratic change in, in Senegal. Uh, and if this is a chronic pattern, I mean, why does this always keep happening? always the dream deferred right exactly yeah. um yeah i don't think it's particularly african i'll just say that um i think that women's struggle for equal personhood is a global problem i don't think african movements and african men are any worse or pathological, more pathological than anywhere else in the world. It has always been difficult to do the kinds of, to make the kinds of arguments that Rama is making here, right? About uh, the worth of women, about um, the, the ways in which women's bodies matter. The whole uh, um, foundation of our societies across the world and what, what was the separation of women's labor and the appropriation of their reproductive work uh, and its devaluing and the whole process of naturalizing, for example, certain kinds of family relations as, uh, as normal and outside of commodity formation, just hid what is at stake for women and women's bodies. And I think Rama put it very, very well. I think all over the world, we see that inability to understand women's demands as of worth uh, and of value. Um, so, you know, feminism is an ongoing attempt to deal with that. And it has more and more begun to show how that dispossession of women 
from their their selves, their bodies, their work, um, how um, how much that is a violent process, rooted in all kinds of uh, violence that was mostly invisible and has been made visible by feminist movements across the world. So I mean, I would just say this is not. I know that it's often you know this idea that Africa's worse. I don't think it is worse. I think we're at a moment of intense confrontation between those different logics, but there have been similar moments in other parts of the world as well. Um, Rama, do you want to do you want to quickly just um, respond to to that particular question? This kind of why is there always this trade-off? Yes, um, I, I believe because there is one. Um, for me, there is something that sums it up quite well, which is adverse incorporation. When you were talking about inclusion earlier, I prefer to, to, to talk about adverse incorporation in all those spaces, whether it is in politics, whether it is in the economy, whether it is uh, even uh, how we manage our households or uh, whatever the term we use. For me, it's adverse incorporation, that we are not totally included nor totally excluded. and. Um, I, I believe it gives us also a political, uh, a powerful political tool to articulate these um, dimensions. And I, I also echo what uh, Shirin was talking about. My research is on, and I will anticipate on William's next question maybe. My research is on uh, large scale land acquisitions and providing a feminist critique or analysis of those um, uh, investments. And what we find often is that there is a combination of capitalist patriarchies and paternalism, combining what is happening within the households with what is happening within the factory, treating the factory as the, uh, you know, the, the house of the pater familias. So I, I think we need to repoliticize those questions, stop treating them as separate, but bringing them to the, together in order to have this uh, type of intersectional or, or critical feminist analysis. And I, I also believe we, and that's something I've seen in my research, it's some, what we need is also to recognize the agency of the workers, uh, of women, whether it is within the family, within uh, the factory, within um, uh, institutional organizations, recognize their agency, recognize their ability to, 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 to choose and to decide for themselves, even though we also need to take into consideration the, the larger structures of oppression that, that exist. So for me, it's a question of repoliticizing, but also moving from the weapons of the weak, which is one of the crucial expressions that we use in agrarian political economy, to the, to the weapons of the organized. And I also believe in the power of unionizing, in the power of coming together and strategizing and conspiring in order to, to, to um, fight those uh, multi-layered structures of, of oppression. Thank you. Thank you for that, Rama. And, and I think we're going to, we're going to touch on, on, on women's organizing on agrarian questions in a moment. But I just wanted to take this opportunity to bring on our final guest for this episode, who is Rosebel Kalgumire. 
Rose Bell is a writer, campaigner, award-winning blogger, pan-African feminist, and multimedia communications strategist. She is the current curator and editor of AfricanFeminism.com. She has expertise in human rights, gender, peace, and conflict issues, and she has been interviewed on Africa as a country, actually by, by Rama herself, and her writing also appears in international media like The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Quartz, as well as other venues. And in 2018, she was awarded the Anna Guia Award for her advocacy for digital democracy, justice, and equality by Africtivistes, a network of African activists. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But, but Rosebell, we've been having this conversation now about a lot of these challenges that women still face today. And the note that Rama just ended on is talking about how we need to organize. And I think that the work that you do is really interesting because you look at how through digital platforms, women are beginning to organize, women are beginning to form connections. And to connect this back to what Shireen was saying earlier, in the past, that wasn't really available to women. They had to rely on traditional forms of organizing, which were a little bit more restrained and constricted. So could you start by talking to us about how in your work you're uncovering these many different ways in which women are using their access to the internet and digital technologies to connect with each other and to connect the struggles that they face? Thank you. Um, glad to be here. I was enjoying the conversation. Um, that's a good question. Good to see um, Rama and Shirin and the brilliant ideas um, that are coming through. Definitely um, living in the age of the internet has brought so much for uh, organizing of African young feminists and also queer movements on the continent. and as we see before um, the internet and we, we were seeing more um, very kind of um, an, uh, parallel organizing outside the, the status quo um, that we are seeing in many in many countries because uh, I think young women cannot find are not and uh, cannot find conducive environment within uh, what is given as a status quo. Uh, someone was talking about South Africa, but it's the same uh, with Uganda and other countries where organizing um, uh, bringing women into the uh, the system. Uh, actually they are co-opted in the system and do not necessarily serve um, the, the needs of the, of the women and the women are not necessarily heard. So these systems have co-opted women's voices uh, to actually kind of, um, you, you'd say like um, you, you basically get, and we live in a world where there are all these uh, kind of indicators. If you have this percentage of women in your parliament, you are supposed to be a, a democracy, all these things. And, and it doesn't matter if a dictatorship employs 60% of the women uh, in their ranks. It's called, or you find it in the best books of the world rankings on gender, as if gender does not, um, on gender and, and women's rights, as if gender does not intera inter interact with other um, other operations, you know. So so we see increasingly women organizing. They have always organized, but uh, I think the power of social media and uh, and all these messaging apps, people creating different groups to actually connect to one another. You have you have so many African WhatsApp groups. I mean, by 
women, young women by feminists. And on an average, on a, on a, on a daily basis, I, I can tell what is happening in Senegal. I can, without probably even going to, to Twitter, I can know what's gonna happen, what's been happening in Senegal, what's happening in Namibia, the women organizing um, things, uh, movements like Toto Shutdown in South Africa, Shut It All Down in Namibia. Um, this has been very important for women, for young women to also um, share skills and know um, and know that things that things are possible. We live in different. Um, our struggles are very linked, but also our systems uh, are. Are, are very similar, but in ways they are very different. So uh, in that ways, we see many um, learning from uh, some areas where people are a bit advanced in terms of how they're they're, they're fighting back or advocating for themselves. So these are all, uh, besides just talking to each other, people are gaining information. These are information sharing platforms with real time um, connections and, and anytime you can actually access, if you're writing, working on something, you're like reorganizing this, what, how would you advise this? I, I'm, I have been part of such so many different groups and gained so much from them. Uh, it would never have happened um, tw ten, even 10 years ago, actually, mm -hmm. this kind of changes we have seen in the last, we're saying the last five years, I think, uh, in different countries. So I wanted to just um, kind of be a little bit more specific to see how this sort of example would play out in, in Uganda and how gender, how gendered some of these things are. So for example, I mean, anybody who watches Uganda can can help notice, right? Like how young people or opposition groups use the internet in a way like they've never done before, and of course they mix it with with kind of popular politics. And I think everybody would agree that that has helped, say, the rise of Bobby Wine um, as a political figure. But is that is that often like is that like an accurate reflection sometimes of like the politics in a place, like of the opposition politics in a place? For example, from where I'm sort of sitting. Stella Nyanzi has been going at some of this for much longer, has, I think, often a much more radical understanding of what the problem is and how to undo the problem that you just don't reproduce this kind of, you know, this, this sort of Sonko Zuma type politic. How do you, how do you, how do you sort of attack that question or that as a political problem? Like, why is it that I mean, you know, as I said, Stella's, Stella's been doing lots of interesting politics. Maybe for some of our viewers, you want to explain and just sort of place her in the politics of Uganda. Yeah, so just last year, I worked with a few uh, writers in Eastern Horn of Africa to look at how patriarchy was uh, um, uh, playing a big role in even rolling back the few democratic gains we have had in the region and looking at opposition politics mirroring the establishment. They, they might have a different language and say and, and, and say different things, but actually they replicate a lot of the system. And often when you look at their, um, right from their leadership, you might have a woman as a deputy, but really who has the power, who is seen, who is put out every day to be seen, to be to be trusted, to be seen as a leader. And the fact that you still very have very hierarchical leadership in opposition, really uh, that, that it's always the man at the top and then women are supposed to really come second to them. And, and, and it's still very token um, 
idea of, of, of women's inclusion. And it's almost never a woman who is radical enough who can, who can be seen as like, if the president is not there, the president of the party, then this woman is also serving the purpose or concurrently. And without looking at women as equals in the struggle and getting um, women who are equally um, um, uh, continuing to, 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 to really um, speak out or have the similar capacity, I think in that way, men in opposition parties who lead opposition parties continue to marginalize women. And there'll be some women in the lower ranks of the party, but what, uh, what we see even then, like when the more, uh, uh, the more militarized the government becomes, the more alienating even in opposition politics uh, women become. Or even when they're organizing, the organizing is not seen as legitimate, you, you know? Right. If, you're not on, if you're not willing to be on the street to be arrested, then you're not, you're not really a fighter. And I do not, uh, you know, we do not uh, count um, uh, resisting and 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 being a comrade in terms of uh, whether you actually can go on the street. I think that uh, that also reflects on the really narrow ideas of resistance that we mm -hmm. see regurgitated by the by, by the resistance movements and opposition parties. So they re they continue to be male, and then when you challenge them, they're like, "Oh, but women don't even dare mm -hmm. come here. Why don't they come?" I'm like, "No, it is your responsibility to know that uh, you live in a patriarchal society and be very." of the fact that you are regurgitating the same power dynamics um, that, that actually the, uh, the establishment does. So in Uganda, for example, Stellanians would not be famous among you know um opposition even he uh, i mean she belongs to, to the fdc political party but she's a fair she's a radical um uh, feminist and she she goes for um she was not going to shut up and if she thinks of something she's going to ask about it and the whole of uganda has been shocked about how she's been writing about the invisibility of bobby wine and being being pictured as somebody who is a savior taking this whole generation to deliver them and remove a dictator. I think that most people think that those are conversations you have after you, you remove a dictator, but radical people have always shifted our narratives and, and challenged us to think in real time. And so I appreciate Nyanzi's uh, questioning. Uh, I might not, maybe the style sometimes is a bit like for me to, it, I wouldn't, but I think that what makes her who she is, is the ability to speak the way she wants without any limitations. So, uh, so while everybody's limited in this idea of like, okay, this is not a time to fight. Uh, the the government is really arresting everybody and jailing everybody, torturing people. Uh, this is not a time to ask questions about the kind of leader we have at the top in their politics. But uh, I think that you always need that radical thinking to challenge you because you can't mm -hmm. wait take over power in order to actually um, uh, then realize, oh, what is the politics of the person beyond the popularity? So I think that that has to be, that has to be, we have to create room for that. And I think social media has enabled us, voices like Stella, because she's not, she's not a popular person who's going to be in terms of like the establishment media and also in the sense of who is popular among political opposition. So, uh, so, so I think it's very, very important to maintain such radical voices who remind us constantly that the questions um, that needs to be asked. So, that, that was great, and and it, it, I think it's it's apt at this moment to just sort of draw from 
a comment that Amabini uh, makes on on the chat where she, they say, thank you everyone for your contributions. Indeed, International Women's Day is an opportunity for us to reflect on how far the struggle for women's liberation has come and how far we have to go. So on the question of how far we have to go, when we think of, of the road ahead and how long and torturous it might be, I'm curious to know. Yeah, we hope it's not. We hope it's not long and torturous. We hope it's not. We hope it's not. But if we're no, we don't want that. Okay, let's be optimistic. And and this is the question to close. <laughs> when we think of the road ahead, and we want to inspire ourselves to to fight fiercely, whatever battles remain. Who are the figures that each of you draw from in history to give you that sort of um, you know, I think the, the political courage. Um, it makes you toy toy. Well, as, as Roosevelt said, it might be dangerous to get out of the house, but who makes you, who gives you that, yeah, who makes you want to get out of power? Yeah. We heard about Rosa Luxemburg earlier. Um, what are some other names that, that come to mind? Definitely Winnie Mandela, you know, to, till her death, you know, resisting the patriarchy till you die. You know, uh, and this is not to say like feminists are supposed to be angels, but the, the, the struggle is rough. But women are not accorded the room to be to, to actually have those flaws in the idea that you have to be flawless for a woman to, to, to get that space. For me, uh, how she was sidelined uh, tells me a big story. Even, even when I tell people when I'm dealing with a mainstream opposition and even when I advocate for them and want to work with them, I do it from a distance. I feel like they are not ready to actually uh, see me as an equal, as, as, as intelligent and as deserving of the space and as deserving of the protection. So a lot of times we see women are not protected in opposition movements, both from within, from sexual harassment, violence, and protected from the outside world as men would be. So I'm always cautious of how I engage. Um, it, it's, it's, still, it's, it's not a solution, but I think learning from experiences of women like Winnie Mandela is very important for young women to know how to engage with the mainstream and when where power is involved, even if that power is opposition power. Who wants to go next? I, I, I'm so resistant to the idea of, you know, single woman narratives yeah. and the celebrity, you know, I, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, what makes me want to go out on the street and toy toy are actually the things men do. That's what makes it like the, the ongoing crap that we are fed daily by the men in this world is what makes me want to get out there and fight. Um, uh, you know, but obviously there's something really inspirational of those four young women who were students at Wits, you know, are my students who kind of, that, that like really gives you courage uh, to go forward, right, when they stand up in front of the president of the country and say you're a rapist, actually. Forget all the other bullshit. Uh, excuse my language. But, uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I mean, I think just to take it, to, like to close it, to take back to the International Women's Day, I think it's really, and, and, and the question that was asked, it's really uh, important to 
to remember that we are not on some linear progression that things will, you know, once you win something, it will be there and you can, you know, rely on it. You have to be mobilized on an ongoing basis. And I follow um, a lot of developments at the moment in Eastern Central Europe, where you see the rise of right-wing governments who are clawing back the things that women won uh, in previous generations in places like Poland and Hungary. Um, and you know, I think that it's important not just to stand in solidarity with all of those struggles, but also to use those moments to remember that no matter how progressive you think a constitution is or how many women you think you, know, you want to get into government, that, uh, that those people can turn against you too, or power is always going to be exercised against the voices of those people wanting an egalitarian society. So you have to be permanently mobilized, really. Um, and that's the lesson of International Women's Day, and you have to be permanently mobilized and in solidarity beyond national bound boundaries, beyond the borders uh, of your own struggles and countries. I totally agree with that, Shireen. I don't know what to add after that. But I would say, uh, first, don't apologize. Uh, Stella Nyanzi told us to be, told us the lessons of being radically rude. So I think it's important. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, what you said just echoes what is happening here in Scotland right now. With Nicolas Sturgeon, you need to be permanently mobilized. You need to be permanently organized. And um, yeah, what uh, Roosevelt was saying about politics, women's being at the fringes of all those movements, doing the caretaking, mobilizing, etc. I totally agree. We're seeing it with um, the free Senegal movement, Yassin Fall, um, you know, who was at the forefront when Sonko was in prison. Now back to the fringes because Sonko is out, for instance. But I totally agree, and I wouldn't take a personal or an individual to say that they are inspirational, but rather movements. Um, I, I totally, um, I am totally inspired by Yewi Yewi, for instance, in Senegal, which was a movement in the 1980s, uh, led by women like um, um, Marie-Angélique Savané, who do not have a good reputation, but I think it's quite, uh, it's, it's a good thing. When you hear that a woman doesn't have a good reputation, it might... Uh, teach you something. And uh, same with uh, Wangari Mathai and the uh, Green Belt Movement in Kenya. Uh, I think I read a paper which was saying that she's not a good woman and that's a good thing. So I think all those, it's it's rather movements that inspire me and, and what the legacy that they have uh, left us and which we need now to carry forward. So yeah, that would be my two cents. Thank you. I mean, thank you all for, for those excellent answers. There's a, there's a comment here by Lisa Owino, which says, would be interesting to hear more about more feminine labor, like mm -hmm. care work as, as radical. I just want to say that um, Rama has a book on, on feminist parenting that everyone should check out if they have the time. And, and I, I mean, I want to mention that I would, I know she's watching, so I'm going to say this, but you know, my inspiration is is my mother, whom I love deeply, and I, I'm grateful she's always watching this program and always commenting, and uh, I just thought I should give her a shout out. And thank you so much to 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 you, Shireen, to Rama, to Rosebell, um, to my wonderful co-host, Sean, and to our wonderful, wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel. Um, we appreciate everyone taking the time 
to come on today's program and everyone taking the time to to watch um we will see you guys again and the struggle continues but i think i'm of today's today's talk i'm feeling i'm thinking a lot better about our prospects and really appreciate everyone coming that, that on today. happened in like four minutes you're happening in four minutes <laughs> the <longer laughs> this is be organized with me. you gotta organize <laughs> like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Bye. Thank you so Enjoy much for joining. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. everyone.